This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. As a listener to this podcast, you might often fantasise about your ideal cabinet, who you'd have as Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor or Home Secretary. But have you ever had that thought, but with beer? Thanks to our friends at Beer52, you can create your own cabinet of beers. You'll get a free case of eight craft beers, and all you have to do is cover the postage of £5.95. So go to beer52.com slash party. That's the word beer, the numbers five and two, dot com slash party. And get your free case of eight beers. And you can arrange them however you like. You can create a cabinet, or depending on your political leanings, a shadow cabinet, or just leave them in the cabinet. And of course, the joy of a Beer 52 monthly subscription is that you can have a reshuffle every month, which would still make it more stable than most of the governments we have in the UK. It comes with a magazine and a snack, and if you don't like dark beer, you can choose the light option, you can pause or cancel at any time. So if you want to bring some stability and you don't fancy a reshuffle, you can indeed lead by example. Go to beer52.com slash party and pay £5.95 postage to get all this now. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. And as I sort of promised at the end of the last episode, a second episode this week featuring Charlotte Leslie, the former Conservative MP for Bristol North West. This is absolutely brilliant because there are so many things in this chat that took me slightly by surprise, that I didn't know were going to come out, that I didn't expect. Um, as you may know, Charlotte was a very talented swimmer before she went into politics and was a lifeguard at the beach. Now, I was going to ask her about that. You may have seen the photo when we talk about that. Um, but where that conversation led was not something I'd planned. So I would love to be able to say, oh, I... Uh, thought in detail about what lessons a lifeguard might learn and try to apply that to other areas of life. But it is a fascinating conversation about who follows rules and how you get people to follow rules. And you can kind of see where this is going regarding COVID. But as a lifeguard, how do you stop people getting in the water? And what sorts of people do and don't take messages on board? That is like a kind of bonus psychology element to the wider conversation. But it's great. And Charlotte's done so many interesting things inside and outside of politics. And her approach to politics is very refreshing. And her view of what it is and what it should be, likewise. Um, but had worked on policy, coming up with ideas. Um, and not just um, seeking representation, not for its own sake, but actually as well as seeing it as a, a, the important role of the politician to represent their constituency, but had always been ideas focused as well as being pragmatic um a great discussion about why she's a conservative um and and just so many other things so many other brilliant things and also a reflection on why someone so talented and with such a high profile for a relatively short period of time in politics wasn't rewarded um with ministerial office by by the two prime ministers that uh, by David Cameron and by Theresa May who were prime ministers while she was a conservative MP so it's absolutely jam packed but there are so many brilliant uh, extra bits in this that I didn't see coming, <laughs> particularly the TV shows that Charlotte has worked on will 
Uh, well, you will find them very interesting, I think. Maybe you've seen them. <laughs> so we'll have a conversation about that afterwards. But I began by asking Charlotte, I didn't want to start too negative, but it's almost four years now since she was last a member of Parliament, which seems to have flown by. Um, so I asked her how it felt and whether she misses it. It's really strange. I had exactly that same thought the other day. And you go around saying to people, of course, well, you know, I used to be an MP. And when it's a year ago, that's fine. Suddenly you realise it's almost four years ago and you think, hang on, have I got any other identity other than something I used to be? Um, but, but of course you do. Um, and it's amazing when you lose your seat, it's, it's really tough. And you think you're never, ever going to get through it. Uh, like, you know, you have to move, you, you know, the, the redundancy payment is not what the papers would have you believe. And you think, am I ever going to rebuild my life? And you think there will be a time when this is four years ago. And here it is. And I'm still here. <laughs> and <they're> gonna... <laughs> well, I hope it feels good. I mean, that point about um, the public perception about what former MPs get and, and the reality sounds sounds quite different. I mean, you say you had to move. Did you have to move house then after after 2017? I think I moved seven times, which involved out of what? offices and um, so if, you know, my office, my constituency place. Um, my place that I've been staying in in London. Um, don't forget, I have to move out of two offices. I didn't have oh. anywhere to live, so I had to stay at a friend's house. I had to move out of there. And you don't get your redundancy payment. I didn't get it until November, and I lost my seat on the 8th of June. And uh, it wasn't, it was, it was about a month's pay um, at the end of it. So it was pretty hairy and pretty financially difficult, um, exhausting and stressful. So you do think, I'm just never, ever going to get through this. But you do. That's appalling that it takes from June until November for any, like, severance package or whatever you call it, redundancy payment. I can't it, believe it, it's so bad. It was really weird. It, it, I think, hopefully, I think they have changed it. I think we were a very unlucky um, exit group. But my staff were still employed. Um, that you had an option of carrying on employing them, which of course I did, because it's really hard for your staff as well when you lose your seat. Yeah. But oddly, I didn't have a job. So they still had salaries going in, which was quite right, and they needed that. But I didn't, and I was employing them, except that I wasn't employed myself. Um, and then you have to wrap everything up, and that takes a while. It took until about November. Um, and at that point, IPSA the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority said, oh, OK, then you can have your uh, you can have your redundancy payment now, by which time I was a slightly snivelling heap on the floor saying I haven't got any money. Thank you. So oh. it, it was tough. It was tough. So when you employ those staff after the election defeat, are you having to pay them out of your own pocket? No, the, the par Parliament Ipsa does. So Ipsa was employing them. But of course, you're trying to build your own life. And in most general elections, you, you kind of know it's coming. So you make your plans. This one was a snap election. So although I did, I, to be honest, I, was, I had a pretty good idea that I wasn't going to be an MP after the election, right, uh, right at the beginning when it was called. But I didn't have time to make the kind of plans that you would if you were seeing an election on the horizon in four or five years time, contingency plans. And, you know, for my staff, it, it, you know, when you've been an MP, some would say it's easier to get a job. But if you've been an MP's member of staff, it's really tough. Um, and suddenly there's a lot of MP staff who are looking for jobs. So I tried to support my staff through that period and shift my stuff into friends' garages and whatever else it was. Um, it was a tough time.
Um, but I'll tell you what, you really find out who your friends are. And one of the best things about losing my seat is that when you're an MP, you have all sorts of people who are suddenly your friend because of those two letters after your name. When those two letters fall away, it's like the tide of flotsam, good time friends that sort of retreats and it leaves diamonds on the beach. And the diamonds are your friends who are absolutely there for you. And I have people helping me with delivery vans, um, you know, ex-constituents giving me their garage to keep my stuff in, offering me a place to stay. And um, it's very nice to know now that my friends are my friends because of who I am and not because I have a couple of uh, initials after my name. Isn't that, I mean, it's such a cliche really, but it's it's a shame to find out that it's true that that, that happens. Um, it's really so... interesting to see how most former colleagues have been amazing, really, really good friends. There are one or two who are a little bit different. Now I'm not an MP anymore. And it's uh, quite an eye-opener. In what way? Um, I won't go into it, but they, they perhaps might treat you in ways they, they wouldn't have treated you as a colleague. So, less respectfully? Yeah. Yeah, you could say that. Isn't that just peculiar? It's a tiny, tiny number, but it, it is quite interesting. It's just very interesting to see. Quite and sad, it's, really. Oh, it's awful to hear. Um, and it was awful. I remember talking to Anna Subri when she was a Conservative MP and she was talking about, you know, going through Brexit and some of the behaviour of her parliamentary colleagues towards her was, they would treat her worse than if she was a Labour MP. It was really, she said one guy who she wouldn't name made kind of throat slitting gestures at her on the Tory oh. benches during like parliamentary proceedings. It's, I mean, this is, there's, look, in life you always have, there's always one or two people in life who aren't great. And to be honest, my ex-colleagues have been absolutely fantastic as a whole. They, they really have, um, really wonderful. And I'm still in touch with, with them and um, still really good friends. But it's just the one or two. You just think, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's so heartbreaking because you always, it's almost, you always think wrongly that by the time people are adults, bullying doesn't happen anymore. But of course it does. And when you hear about it from politicians or you know that sort of behavior it's just so it's so tragic but it reflects it reflects more on them of course than, than it does on you well you know I always think that people who but bullies are very seldom happy and if people are if people are being foul there's probably a reason for it and they're probably not having a great time in their own lives so that's that's the way I try to think of it that's true that's a good thing to take away from it um, I obviously don't want to dwell on to start the interview with about you losing your seat <laughs> but what was so interesting about Bristol Northwest and your experience is you win it in 2010 you increase your majority in 2015 and then you get to 2017 and by your own admission, at the start of that election campaign, you're not expecting to win it. So those two years, obviously Brexit's a huge part of this, perhaps the Corbyn effect, and we can talk about that. But what's the main thing Brexit, do you think? For Bristol North West, yeah, absolutely. Um, they, it, was a, it was a seat that hadn't wanted Brexit, and they were very angry with the government that had delivered it, or was delivering it, or had called the referendum. Um, and that's democracy. You know, that's that's um, and of course, it's a, it's an odd thing because I, I you get to know a constituency like you get to know a person, yeah. you know, you get to know it really well. And, you know, you know, when people are saying, you know, when a friend says I'm fine and you know they're not, you can tell with your constituency, it says, oh, I'm, we're fine. And you think, oh, you're not really, are you? You're not really very happy. Um, and so you have to work very hard and support your team that's campaigning for you and work as hard as you possibly can, as if you if you, you know, you're going to win. 
but I did in my belly. I, I thought it was probably it was probably time. And of course, you never ever hold, hold a marginal seat like Bristol without thinking there will be a day when this is all over. And how will I feel? And what will matter to me on the day that I lose my seat? How will I look back on the time I was an MP? What will I be proud of? And what will I not be proud of? And I try to do every day as an MP, almost for that last day, to think what's going to matter when this is all over. But what an incredible three years. 2015, you get that increased majority. At that point, even though in the back of your mind, you know it's a marginal seat, you think, well, I might have at least five years. Well, I might have another five here. There's the fixed terms Parliament Act was still in place at that point. So you think I've probably got another five. Then 2015 is the election, 2016 the referendum, then 2017 another election. It must have been the craziest two or three years of your life. It was pretty crazy, um, not least because I, I had a pulmonary embolism um, on 2016. I had my appendix out, routine thing, and then got a pulmonary embolism and was out for the count really from summer 2016 until early 2017. Recovered, just getting into my stride again, and then bam, general election. But it, it was it was a very interesting time because I think things changed dramatically from about the end of 2014 onwards. Um, and I think it's a fascinating transition. And I think social media had a lot to do with it. And the way I describe it is that everything just began to get a little bit crazier. And the only image I have for it is, I, I love surfing, I love the sea, is when you're out at sea and just the wind changes direction and it's being calm and suddenly there's little white tops. And you think, oh, something's changing, a weather front's moving. And that happened at the 20, end of 2014. 2015 was a much more frenetic election than 2010 um, and people were behaving differently they were getting a little bit more tribal um, and a bit more agitated by 2017 it was a completely different landscape things were much much nastier um, people had become far more tribal facebook posts were far nastier and interestingly even the same constituents when they were writing in were writing in slightly different ways than they would have done say five years ago slightly more certain of where they felt they stood on issues and slightly much angrier. People got a lot, lot angrier. And I'm fascinated by how that happened. Um, and it was certainly, there was a tipping point with social media that I, I noticed that change at the end of 2014. In 2014, the two big democratic exercises that year were the European elections and the Scottish independence referendum towards the end of, that was September, of course, the referendum those things with social media in the background. For me, the Scottish independence referendum was the first time, because I think maybe the three or four elections before that, people would go, oh, this is going to be the first online election, and then it never really was. But that was the first big exercise where you go, wow, this has unleashed a new culture. People are behaving in a completely different way, and the language had changed. So when you think of the phrases that, particularly on the left, get used now, things like MSM, the mainstream media, I'd never heard that before the independence referendum. There was, uh, you know, red Tories and things like that. And I'm sure you've <laughs> had terms that were that were labelled at you. But what did that, I mean, you're down in Bristol Northwest at the time. Was there any kind of impact, do you think, of the independence referendum? Or am I slightly misdiagnosing the problem there? That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that. I think maybe there was. Maybe referenda plus social media isn't such a great cocktail. Um <laughs> Maybe, but maybe it was a symptom. You know, these things are quite complicated, cause and symptom. But 
it did just change. And I'm fascinated, to, you know, we, we read in the Russia report that um, bots and, and the manipulation of social media and, and things started really to be introduced around 2014 after the incursion into Ukraine, after Britain had basically waved a flag to its hostile states in the rest of the world and said, you know, we're a bunch of, you know, big girls' blouses, if that's not a politically incorrect thing to say, after the Syria vote, when we didn't intervene on chemical weapons and Obama's red line was a, turned out to be a bit of a pink blodge. I remember thinking at that point, this is really bad news. Regardless of the merits of intervening in Syria or not, and it's we can all have hindsight on this, to say you're going to do something and then not do it is a really huge advertisement to the world that you don't have very much authority. And there's a lot of hostile states out there who will now go, great, the West has no authority, we can do what we want. And then, of course, Russia got involved in Syria. We saw the incursion into Ukraine. And then after that, things began to get a little bit crazy. And I, so I think the Russia report was really interesting on that. And I do wonder to what extent that is driving our politics. So you noticed this change in 2014, as, as, as many people did, and then, and then we're heading towards the referendum in 2016. Did that inform at all um, your positioning in that referendum? Did you think, I, I mean, you've, you've said that you, you voted leave, but you were 51% leave, you know, you, you weren't a hard Brexiteer by any measure. But did you think this is going to be nasty? Did you kind of have a sense that the, the Brexit referendum might um, be like the sort of thing we'd never seen before? Yeah, I, I did begin to get that feeling. If I'm really honest now, which it's much easier to be, um, I loathed the whole thing. It just felt like the most depressing, awful exercise and brought out all the worst elements of democracy. Um, I wasn't at all happy about the way the Leave campaign conducted itself. And nor, to be honest, did I think the Remain campaign conduct itself very well. It came over as really dismissive of, of a lot of my Brexit voting constituents' concerns. And it was just devastating to see neither side really make a case that I would want to see in a, in a developed democratic country. And I, I had no idea which way to go uh, for most of the time. And it was frustrating because as an MP, you're expected to have an answer and be absolutely convinced that you are absolutely right and everyone else is wrong. And I just couldn't muster that. I could see both sides and I didn't know whatever way I was going to go was going to be right. And I said to constituents that when I finally did decide, I didn't really want to tell people how I was voting because I didn't want people to follow me. And I didn't know if I was right or wrong. And so I said, look, I'm voting this way, but don't follow me. Do what you think is right and don't hate people who think differently from you. And that's the most important thing. So in some ways, I do wish I'd never told people how I voted because I wasn't very sure. I never campaigned for either side. And of course, of course, people label you with how you voted. Um, and it becomes so tribal um, because that's the times we live in now. But I, I really felt it was a really low point, um, the way the whole referendum was done in our democracy. And it just seems to have got worse since then. And did you did you try and hold out on on keeping your vote secret? And in the end, did that just become an un, you know an untenable position? No, I, I I debated with myself whether I should keep my vote secret, but I decided that I was people's MP and they did deserve to know how I voted. I contextualise it by saying I'm just one vote and I don't know any more than you do, really. Um, but I felt it wasn't right it wasn't the right thing to keep it secret. So the minute I decided, um, I, I 
I did let people know when I decided, which was hard. The effect on the Conservative Party as well was just volcanic, really. Had Labour not been in the position it had been in during those Corbyn years, we'd probably be talking far more about how a government was involved in a civil war with itself. Did you talk to David Cameron during that period and, and voice these concerns? Yeah, I'd seen for a long time the political class in general splitting away from most people in the country. And one of the things that I felt very passionately about was... My constituents in 2006 saw a lot of them in, in, in the more, um, the less well-off areas, saw a huge change in their community really, really quickly um, as sort of Eastern Europeans um, came here and contributed to our economy and, you know, have, have contributed an enormous amount. But for a certain set of people, a place that had been the same for the last 50 to 100 years changed enormously within the space of about five years and it was simply that pace of change that people felt very uncomfortable about because their identities were shifted very fast um, and they were sort of raising their hands and saying look we feel a bit uncomfortable about this um, you know the shop that used to be always used to be the post office now sells food that's different very nice but different and it's a language I don't understand and, and I feel like something of me has been taken away or changed and instead of saying, okay, that's interesting. How can we make sure this works out? And how can we make sure that demographic, fast demographic change is done happily and harmoniously? We said, oh no, don't be so racist and stupid. And there was a lot of political sneering saying, don't be so racist and stupid. We really like it because we have a Polish nanny. And that's a very different proposition from if your work circumstances have changed dramatically. And if suddenly school places aren't as easy to come by and None of these people were bad people and none of these people were racist. And on a daily basis, my constituents were, were hugely friendly and helped, new, you know, newcomers to their area. But there was an issue and we didn't listen to it. And so, of course, you get you get certain people coming along and saying, look, the political class is all telling you you're stupid and racist. I don't think you're stupid and racist. I think you matter. Come along with me. And then, of course, you get far right movements growing up. Um, and and we, we we let that happen. And in Bristol Northwest, then, what, what what sort of demographic changes were happening? Um, certain parts of my constituency, we have a dock area, um, Avonmouth docks. Certain areas were seeing um, uh, quite an influx of um, Eastern Europeans, Polish, uh, Bulgarian, Romanian, lots of whom are, you know my friends, and and it socially integrate very well and are a huge, huge asset to the community. However, that change was very fast. And it was the speed of the change and the fact that when people articulated how their lives were changing faster than they were comfortable with, they weren't listened to. That was the problem. Because some people might say, well, you know, I understand that, but you know, th this is the world, the world changes fast, you know, if you don't like it, then maybe you are a bit, uh, you know, out of date, maybe, maybe, maybe some of these people were slightly bigoted towards newcomers. In a sense, it's a bit like it's, you can say should be people should be like this and should be like that as much as you want. If you want society to work well together, it makes sense to look at what you know of human nature. Whether you want human nature doesn't be like that or not. And what do we know about people whose um, circumstances change very fast and things they've been very fond of are changed very quickly? Well, we know it doesn't work out so well. And in a sense, this 
very vulnerable abandoned community was prey to people who capitalized on their fear, capitalized on their sense of being isolated and not listened to by uh, a political class for their own power and benefit. Um, in a sense, I see it almost like grooming. You find a, a, a population or a person who isn't looked at, doesn't feel looked after, doesn't feel heard, doesn't feel noticed. Uh, the groomer tells them that they're special, tells them that they listen to them even though no one else does, um, and builds that relationship of trust and then can use them for what they want to do. And I think a lot of the far right movement that we are seeing build in this country has isolated and picked on people who we've not listened to. And I think if we had listened to them a bit more, if we'd not said you're stupid and racist, but listen to how their lives are, live inside their skin for a little bit, then we wouldn't be in the situation now. It's very easy from, you know, when I was an MP, from my nice position as an MP to say, oh, you should think this about um, demographic change and the contribution that, uh, that um, you know, my, um, migrants and these Europeans are making to our economy. But I'm not living in a house, that, a council house that's too small for me, that I've been on the waiting list for, for a bigger house for ages, and suddenly my community is changing around me and my job disappears because someone else with a name I can't pronounce takes my job. Or my employer is willing to pay less um, for someone whose living costs and things aren't the same than me. How, you know, and I thought, how am I, who am I to judge that? All we can do is try and look after people and listen to their concerns. Whether they're justified or not, if people are upset, people are upset. And instead of saying you shouldn't be upset, we should have worked out why they were upset and listened to them. And then we had a, a number of people that were upset. The referendum and its result then upsets a whole load of other people, um, many of whom might consider themselves to be to be moderate, sort of Lib Demi types, maybe sort of soft Labour types who then become very exercised about the result of the referendum. And then a lot of that ire is directed at uh, the government, the party, individuals. Um, I know it's very hard for you at times, having you know people giving you a lot of stick in the aftermath of that uh, result. Did that take you by surprise? No, it didn't. Um, and it's understandable that people were very, very upset and angry. As I said, none of us respond very well to our identities being changed very fast when we don't feel we have that much control over it. No one responds well to that. It's very frightening. Um, and I completely understood why people were very angry. And I felt very upset and sorry about it. And, in, you, know, you know, I was an MP, so it's not nice when people are angry at you, but that was my responsibility. That was in a sense, my job. Um, and I felt I had a duty to understand why people were angry. Um, and I've been devastated to see the kind of tribalism and capitalizing on anger and the economy of outrage that has developed from them. I've been really devastated by it. And in a sense, you know, I, I am slightly unusual, I guess, amongst uh, my, my peer group in that I, I did vote Brexit. And if I can do anything from that, it's to try and help explain why people did this thing to people who may not know that many people who voted Brexit and just try to build those bridges because ultimately most of us are good people who just want society to work well um, and harmoniously. And as much as we can understand each other and why we see things from different perspectives, that's the best way to try and do that. So have you felt, I mean, you know, the, 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 the mood music post-Brexit has that been uh, on the whole, I, you know, it's been difficult, uh, it's, it's strained. And then the vaccine 
element of it has perhaps made some people think, well, there might be a benefit to being outside the European Union. I mean, have you have you watched that vaccine debate? Not with a sense of I told you so, but at least with a, a bit of relief in your heart that, well, there was at least one benefit to leaving the European Union. To be honest, I've got really depressed by the politicisation and the EU referendumization of everything. We've got a global pandemic going on, people. What do we need to do? Right, we need to work out how to uh, mitigate or, you know, like New Zealand does, eradicate the, the, the effects of the virus and the spread and get vaccines out. Forgive me if I'm really interested in that and not so interested in some meta-politicisation of it all. You know, my, my campaign slogan was when I was an MP was getting stuff done. And I guess I've always been a rather bad politician because I'm not very interested in the politics of politics. I just, a bit, a bit simple. I just like to see good stuff happen. That's it. That's what makes me happy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that is, a, that is a maxim you've, you've lived by your whole life. Uh, you, you, were a, you began life as a lifeguard, which, I mean, you don't get... In terms of getting stuff done and having a direct impact on people's lives, you know, saving them from the water is about as direct as it gets. So um, what made you want to be a lifeguard? I actually really enjoyed the getting stuff done aspect of it. Um, you know, clever PR isn't going to get a surfer with a dislocated shoulder off a rock in a whomping six foot surf in a fast incoming tide. You, you just have to get him off the rock. Um, but I, I was a failed Olympic swimmer when I was when I was 12 13 that was what I was going to do and I spent most of my life in a swimming pool reeking of chlorine then I I never made it I remember the day I said to my mum I'm just not going to make it am I and she said no Charlotte you're not um and my world fell apart how but old were you when you realized 15 16 okay so actually in a way that's quite late it's not like you were 10 11 and you'd represented Bristol in the 100 meters and the 200 meters so you you're obviously very talented I, I, I've been national finalist in my age group for 100 and 200 metres backstroke and come the lofty place of seventh. So I, you know, I, it was, for me, I thought there was everything to play for. And then I realised that there were just people who were more talented than me and I could work as hard as I liked, but they were just more talented. Um, and that realisation was very hard. And my mum didn't blow sunshine. She didn't say, dream and believe and you can do it. She said, no, I, I don't think you are going to make it. But she then introduced me to my local surf club down in North Cornwall and I started surfing and because obviously I was so fit in swimming that worked well and I just grew to love the lifeguarding movement and I guess my dad's a retired surgeon and a doctor so there was always that sense of public service um, as I was growing up and I just liked the idea of helping keep people safe on the beach. And then I really, really valued the lessons I learned. And I had this amazing boss who's still lifeguarding called Minnie Fry. And he was a proper Cornish guy. And I was seen as someone with a slight, a slight educational disadvantage because I was an academic and I went to Oxford and I had no common sense. And so they were very kind and they were very sort of slow with me and took me through it. And they tried to teach me common sense. I'm not quite sure how good a job they did, but it was the best education I could have had. And it was all about getting stuff done. Is it too simple to say that that, that that moment when you're 15, 16, you realise that you're not going to you know, achieve that dream of perhaps winning a gold at the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games or setting a new world record had an effect on your politics, that that is a kind of, did that moment for you make you a conservative? That's an interesting question. Not that I'm aware of. I guess 
I guess it just made me realize that you have to recognize reality. However unpleasant it is, reality is better if you recognize it. You know, as I think the Godfather says, you know, I want to hear bad news fast. It's, you've got to deal with what is. And I guess, I mean, I'm not a tribal politician. I'm a sort of line of best fit person. Um, but I guess if there was a reason I was a conservative or I'm a conservative, it's because I'm, I suppose I'm pragmatic over idealist or I'm a pragmatist because I'm an idealist. If I want to get to see the world I want to see, I've got to deal with the messy nuts and bolts, warts and all. And, and the way people are, and it goes back to our previous conversation, it may not be a very good human trait that we find people different from us, sometimes threatening, and we don't respond very well as human animals. But that is what we're like. And if we're to try and mitigate that, we've got to start from understanding how human beings tend to work and not say, well, they should be something else. And I guess I should have been an Olympic swimmer, but that wasn't going to happen. So I faced that reality and, and um, actually, you know, life turned out OK. It and I started out, surfing. Yeah, it turned out very, very well. Um, it, it's something that a few Conservative guests on this podcast have said. And, and I can, you know, I'm sure some listeners might be cynical about it. But it, it's something that has cropped up a few times, which is a lot of guests, when they say about why they're a Conservative, and I hear this more from Conservative people than I do from Labour people, is that they don't see themselves as that ideological. Uh, and for whatever people might think about the ideology of the, of the Conservative Party and the current Conservative leadership, there's definitely an attraction for people in the Conservative Party and in the Conservative way that whatever people might think, it, it feels less ideological than the Labour Party. I think there's a, I think there is a, a sort of truth in that. But I think I'd say I'm not ideological about method. I am ideological in what I believe. So I've got this fundamental belief that everyone is of equal value. Rich, poor, regardless of color, regardless of religion or anything else, everyone is absolutely of equal value. And when I was a kid, I used to get really angry at kind of social class systems that put people down just because of the way they spoke or the school they went to. And it, I, I was, I, I, I did some boxing as well. And the boxing was really an outlet for that kind of anger. So I'm not ideological over method. I get really fed up with kind of religiosity of private public sector provision. Should be privatized. Conservatives like privatizing and labor like public sector. Do you know what? I really don't care which it is as long as it works well. Um, but you will be, you won't be able to shift me from that view that everyone is worth the same. So I am ideological on that. How we express that is, is a very, you know, is a question that there's lots of different methods. And I'm very accommodating. I mean, actually, I like the fact there are different political parties. I like the fact people think differently from me because I think probably all of us coming together with our different perspectives, different temperaments, different viewpoints is probably the best way to get something approximating to the best answer. Um, yeah. <laughs> we can't mention your career in the water without talking about the, uh, the infamous Baywatch photo. Oh, no. <laughs> so... That was obviously taken way back when, when you were doing this lifeguarding on the South Coast. Uh, and then it resurfaces when you're an MP. I mean, is it one of those things, is it a bit like David Cameron's Bullingdon Club photo where you hadn't seen it for years and then it emerges and it's all very embarrassing? Or is that something that had cropped up quite regularly throughout your life? No, it was, and it was completely my fault. And this is, this is, this is a sort of a, this is very much a swimmer's problem because I spent most of my life in a swimming costume. 
it just didn't occur to me that this might be a thing. I knew most of my friends from, you know, their, I could tell them from their, their belly, my male friends from their belly button. My, you know, swimming is a very physical sport in that sense. It just doesn't mean very much. Um, so I was asked to do a piece for Swimming Times, a swimming magazine. And I talked about how I'd never made it in swimming, but I did surfing. And they then became a surf lifeguard. And they said, oh, have you got a photo? So of course I went through my old photos and found this photo. I thought, that looks nice. So I, so I gave it to them. And then of course it got picked up. And then of course, of course I should have realized that someone in a swimming costume to people who aren't swimmers is a thing that I hadn't really realized. <laughs> swimming magazine it's not a thing because everyone's in their swimming costume and to be honest I still find it a bit odd that me standing in a swimming costume is a thing but we watch the Olympic Games and we're like well there's loads of people in swimming costumes there and that's not a thing so <laughs> um so of course then when it got picked up I, to myself, I thought it was quite funny the, the really bad thing is is every year that passes I look less and less like that which is very upsetting yeah well I think most people go if you've got one really good photo of yourself you know, most people aren't, aren't keen on the way they look, are they, in some way? So as long as you've got one good, at least one good Yeah, that's my one good photo. I'm not <laughs> saying is, it is, is the one good photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is me. Can't you tell? <laughs> I guess it's a novelty for people, isn't it, if you're in an MP, being an MP. Sometimes that stuff can be quite helpful because you go, oh, that makes you different. People go, oh, you've had a life outside of politics that isn't all... Oxbridge or particular schools or even if you did go to those places it just says oh you've got a life outside and in a way I think the public like that kind of thing. When the photo came out and it's resurfaced again I, I was I was quite worried that people would think that I'd sort of put it out there and that women in particular would, wouldn't like it because it you know for obvious reasons. Actually I found that that women were really nice about it um, and I know, and obviously, amongst some of my constituents, the chaps, it didn't do any harm at all. Um, but, it, <laughs> but it did. So I mean, I just, again, perhaps it's because I'm a, I've got a swimmer's background. I just thought it was quite funny and laugh about it. Um, but it did show that I guess I'd, I'd had a life outside politics, and I think that's really important. And it goes back to, you know, when I first started working in David Willits's office when he was shadow education secretary. I remember we were having a crisis. I think it was over the grammar schools thing, which some of your listeners will remember. And uh, and working on the beach, a bad day at the office, somebody dies. You know that that's what a bad day at the beach is. Somebody somebody dies, and you pull them out of the water, and someone goes home without a family member that they went down to the beach with. That's a properly bad day. I I think I said this in the middle of the grammar schools crisis. I think I said, well, look, nobody's dead. Um, yeah, it's not great, but nobody's dead. And it did not go down well, but it just made me realize that it's very easy in the Westminster bubble to get terribly het up about things that actually really don't matter. And you've got paramedics, some of my friends are firemen, on a call they'll have to go and cut a dead child out of a car. That's, that's real, that's bad. Some piece of bad press is not, is not the end of the world, it really isn't. And I sometimes get quite angry that there is a whole world of people, a whole nation of people who are doing really difficult stuff. Um, our medics at the moment on the COVID front line, they're seeing the most awful things. Fire, firemen, fire, fire people who see the most terrible things, lifeguards. And they are going through really tough stuff. And yet a lot of our focus is on politicians who are running around because someone said something nasty about them yesterday. 
And I don't think it's very helpful. And I don't think it brings the people closer to the political class. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, and this is going to sound terribly naive of me, but, oh, this is going to sound stupid, but with you being a lifeguard, I mean, I guess because of Baywatch and stuff like that and the fact that you're on the beach, it looks like a cool job. Mm. But obviously, it does involve dragging people from the water who are in distress. I mean, how often would people die? Well, it's because beaches are lifeguarded and lifeguards' main job is preventative, very, very seldom. I mean, we, we, I was very thankfully, I never had a fatality on the beach when I was working there. Oh, thank God. And, uh, and a lot, and most of it is prevention. So, and I was working with the most amazing team and I was very, very junior. And I was the only girl, so physically I wasn't as fast. I was a fast swimmer, so I was faster than the men swimming, but I wasn't as fast on a rescue board. So the big difficult rescues that the men would do, um, I'd do the tannoy system and manage crowds and things. But I had a, a cliff fall. I was the first person to um, a side of a cliff fall. And, you know, it's, you, you run there because you hear people screaming. Um, and thank goodness the, the boy, he was a 15-year-old boy, Thank goodness he, he, I don't know how he survived, but he wasn't too badly injured. Um, I had a heart attack on the beach, got the ambulance down. He was okay. Um, and mainly it's keeping people between the red and yellow flags, stopping them taking inflatables out in the open sea, which can blow away. Um, stopping macho, macho men who think that they are very strong swimmers and can swim in the sea when the beach is closed because they are stronger swimmers than an extremely fast current. Um, you know, how you manage that. So we didn't have that many incidents, but it's real you know it's there's a really interesting real. element to this uh, quite apart from the human drama and, you, and your role at the center of it r- regarding covid because you can send out really clear messages that it's not safe to leave your house or to uh, come within two meters of each other or not wear a mask and some people it seems in any country around the world will just abide by the rules if it suits them did you learn anything about kind of the psychology of the herd or the public when it comes to how you deliver a warning and, and whether people are compliant or not and, and what different types of people react to different messages? Well, I, that's a brilliant question. I think it's the thing I learned most about. So beach is a fascinating place. It's like a little society. You've got this sort of blank canvas and everyone around, around 10 or 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock if it's a nice day, everyone comes down with their windbreaks and all their paraphernalia. And they set up little citadels, you know, with their windbreak and their sandcastle and their picnic. And how those people interact, 
how you encourage, persuade and police people to obey the rules of the beach to keep them safe um, is a fact. It, it taught me a lot about when to police, when to persuade, how people interact with each other. You watch families and you tend to find that the families yelling instructions at their children the whole time don't tend to police their own little citadel as well as the families who don't tend to give lots of instructions, which I think is always an interesting observation. Um, but you, I learned that you have to demonstrate to people that you know what you're doing, you know your beach, you know what you're doing, and that in all situations, you're in control. One of the ways you do that in lifeguard training is kind of scenario um, setting and acting. So you, you try and picture the worst possible case scenario and then make it 10 times worse and work out your plan for that. You usually never have to use that, but it means that when stuff does happen, when the cliff fall happens, when whatever happens, you're trained for it, you're ready for it. And even if you don't quite feel you're prepared, you can give an aura that you're prepared and give really clear instructions. Often people want to help in a crisis. So it's about working out in a crowd, say with a cliff fall crowd, who is a key person who you can say, now you, I'd like you to go off and I'd like you to call an ambulance, please. You, can you make sure that everyone stays? Can you help this person make sure they stay away from the, the casualty? And you give people roles and you're clear and calm and you don't keep changing the rules. And that from my little job as a, well, not a little, but my job as a lifeguard on the, in the summers, that's what I got taught by really senior lifeguard bosses like Minnie Fry, who know this stuff. I was stunned when I entered politics that we didn't do scenario planning, that we didn't look at the worst possible case scenario and then work backwards and say, well, what do we do? So that when something really quite predictable happens, we say, oh my goodness, can't believe this happened when it was really quite obvious it was going to happen. It's all the let's let's do a quick fix for tomorrow, for tomorrow, for tomorrow. So just thinking about that cliff fall situation when you've got a crowd of people who want to help. Ideally, then, I mean, and if this is possible, what sorts of people would you look for in a crowd? Who would you think that's the person I need to, to call the ambulance? This is the person I need to help me, you know, keep the neck secure. I mean, my observation was there's usually someone who's done first aid. There's usually someone who may be a nurse or a doctor whose father he may have some kind of connection with that. And they'll tend to step forward and be slightly calmer than, than other people. There are people who kind of want to help but don't know how to help. And I think people just people just sort of emerge in a very, I mean, I, I liked in a sense that job because when the crisis happened, I found I could, feel, I could think a lot more clearly. Um, and I felt, I didn't, no one enjoys a crisis, but I felt able to think better in a crisis than in not a crisis. Um, and the, the people just became apparent. And also, it's also about knowing your own abilities and seniority. I was very junior. So in that instance, the first thing I really needed to do was get the senior lifeguard over because he was going to be able to deal with it better than I would because he spent 20 years on the beach and I hadn't. Um, so it's about understanding yourself, your own limitations, and again, this is a very important lesson for politics. I remember working for a year at Policy Exchange doing a paper on education. And within that year, I was called an expert on education. I wasn't at all. Uh, teachers who had taught their whole professional careers were experts on education. I was not. Um, and as an MP, it's important to know what you're not expert in, which is most things, um, and then ask the people who are and empower those professionals. And so one of the things I'm proudest of when I was an MP was helping to instigate the now chartered College of Teaching, which is a professional body for teachers. 
So they are the experts and we've not done a good job at collecting and making good use of their collective professionalism, knowledge and expertise. And the Charter College of Teaching now is, is doing a brilliant job at starting to collect that. Um, so always ask the experts. Just before we leave the beach, on compliance then, because I'm really interested, not just about COVID, but other things. It sounds like sort of macho men are a bit of an issue. You know, they think they're tough and and, <laughs> and they're not. You know, that may apply to COVID, who knows? But did you, did you get a sense that, you know, old people are more compliant, young people are more rebellious, or, you know, the ideal person to follow an order is, say, a woman of a particular age or a particular background or anything like that. Is there, are there any things like that that you gleaned from lifeguarding? I think people who are secure in themselves and don't feel they have anything to prove are generally happier following rules and orders. However, you also have to make sure that the rules are necessary and not silly rules. One of the things that really antagonizes people and makes them want to disobey the rules is if either they think it's a really silly rule or they don't understand the reason for it. So if you've got someone who says, well, it's my right to do this, I want to do this. If you say, well, look, yeah, you know, I, I can't actually stop you, but look, here's why we ask people to do this. And here's why if everyone did what you want to do, nothing would work and your experience wouldn't be nearly as nice. And you wouldn't like it if someone else was doing this, would you? And you'd be amazed the number of times people say, Oh no, well, I haven't thought of it like that. Yeah, thanks, sure. And it's just explaining to people why you're asking them to do it. It's not because you say, I've got a red and yellow t-shirt on and I'm, a, I'm the authority, so you must do what I say. It's saying, look, we're all trying to coexist together. We've created this structure of rules to help everybody. And it'd be really helpful if you did it because. And then people tend to be a lot more reasonable. You mentioned David Willits earlier and working with him and, and working at Policy Exchange. His nickname was, and probably still is, Two Brains Willits. I mean, I've met him and he's, he, he is super intelligent, but I'm interested to know your, your experience of, of working for him. Does he deserve that moniker? I'm very biased. I'm a huge fan of David Willits. Um, yeah, I think he does. He's got a, he's got a great brain for detail and lines but also creativity and color usually you find people have kind of lines brains like an escher picture very detailed or it's like kind of a monet brain of great splashes of color that's all very creative and evocative david's got both um he's a very very unusual and brilliant mind and, and coming, I, up, coming up with policies is is, is the kind of the industry of politics in a way, you know, people know where they stand in general, but coming up with something like the minimum wage or the NHS, or in your case, the pupil premium, which meant that for every disadvantaged pupil, school's got an extra £6,000 per head. That's seen as a Lib Dem uh, achievement in the coalition government. And it's something the Lib Dems frequently tell us is that it was their contribution to, to, the, um, to the coalition. Do you mind them taking the credit for that? And, and do they deserve any credit for it? John, I'm such a rubbish contributor for your show. I really don't care who takes the credit. I just, I just like to see the good thing happen. But I have to say, it was, it was a little bit upsetting. So I'd spent 2005 working on this with with James O'Shaughnessy, um, who, who I say really, really led it. Um, and we were trying to advocate to the party to take this up. And at that point, I, I was um, very soon afterwards. I was fighting a very, you know, very marginal seat. And at that point, the Lib Dems were looking at they were going to win Bristol Northwest. And so my Lib Dem opponent was making, you know, big shots about the pupil premium, which I'd helped write. And I wasn't able to put it on my leaflet. So that was that was somewhat upsetting. <laughs> that must be, did you say to them, 
I wrote it. Well, I mean, they the, the Lib Dems would say, well, you know, why doesn't your party take it up then? And I'd say, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's very well, I guess that's what you need in politics, though, isn't it? You need the ideas, people, but you also need politicians in Parliament to advocate. And we, you do, and, and we and we did eventually. Um, and you know, I, I I won my I won my seat, and it all turned out okay in the end. But who was it said that there's no limit to what you can get done if you're prepared not to take credit? And that's, that's one of quote. the. Isn't it great? Yeah. Um, and the problem with politics is you have to take credit, otherwise someone else will, and then you don't win your seat. And I'd always been brought up to, if you do something good, not talk about it. It's how my mum brought me up. And then when I became a candidate, it felt really counterintuitive because I had to write these, put on this bit of paper, I'm really great, I've done all this stuff, I'm really great and I'm better than this lot. And it just, I just couldn't do it. And for the first few leaflets, I didn't. And then I saw other leaflets saying, I've done this. And I thought, no, you didn't, I did it. And I thought my constituents deserve at least to know who actually did the things so they can make an informed choice when they come to vote. And that was when I began to be able to put what I'd done on my leaflets. But generally the, the people I've found in my constituency who are the most inspiring are the ones who do things quietly. You know, the invisible hands of great works. And there's a problem with politics because it attracts or it turns you into the kind of person who wants to be a very visible hand of any work. And it's a, you know, it's an age old problem in politics, but I don't always think people like me who, who are, you know, who, uh, who are able to spout their achievements as necessarily the people who achieve the most. And did it, did it change you at all those seven years of, uh, as an MP? Did, did in 2017 you feel that you'd not fundamentally changed? But that you'd experienced the sort of thing that you just described, where you thought sometimes perhaps you were taking credit for stuff that wasn't yours? I wouldn't be the person really to judge whether I changed or not. I, I tried to have people around me who would who would tell me and say, oh, Charlotte, you've changed. Of course it changes you. Um, and I felt that it was important to make an effort to swim against the current of becoming an MP, because I think it, it removes you by its very nature from where you've come from and the people you're serving. There's always this paradox that if you are an MP, a representative, you are by your nature not the same as the people you're representing. Um, and I used to almost be worried that I was somehow going to turn into an MP, it would creep down my fingertips and sort of, I don't know what I meant by becoming an MP, but I think it was becoming institutionalized. And one of the things that informed that fear was the my watching the Iraq war in 2003. I was really, really against going into Iraq. And I saw all these clever, well-meaning, probably well-informed people vote for something that I, and I think most of the people knew was a disaster. I wasn't a great Middle East expert then, or, but I knew it was a disaster. And I remember thinking, how is it that these people can't see, that the politicians can't see what the people can see? And also how is it that politicians are always so obsessed with what the people are thinking? Because I am the people and I know what I'm, we're thinking. What happens when you become an MP that you suddenly don't know what the people are thinking? And would it happen to me if I became an MP? And I guess it does, but I tried to swim against that current. Um, so hopefully it hasn't changed me as much as it might have done. No, no, of course your training means that you're very good at swimming against currents. 
Well, it's great metaphors. The people who go most wrong in the water are the ones who think they're the strong swimmers and don't check their coordinates the whole time. It's very easy to think that you're going in one direction in the sea and find that you've gone into a current and are two miles up the beach from where you want to be. So you constantly have to keep checking your coordinates and you have to do that in life as well, particularly to guard against becoming an institutionalised uh, MP. <laughs> You've had a fascinating life outside of politics and before it. You also worked on The Weakest Link. Oh, no. <laughs> so what did that involve? It was really fun for about two weeks. It involved finding contestants and then putting them into shows and casting them. And I hope I'm not betraying a massive BBC confidence when I say, I think we had nine contestants. And out of that, we were told there had to be one totty and one irritant. Um, yeah. And I, I didn't like this. I didn't like entertainment TV, I have to say. And did uh, the totty have to be male or female totty? Or did male they... or female. No, male okay. or female. I, I candy for the viewers um, and one irritant. And I, I really didn't like treating people like commodities like that. It just wasn't for me. And on so, what, did, did, did whoever handed down that demand or request say, oh, because our audience research shows that if you have an irritant and someone who's attractive... Was that I'm ever sure, explained? I'm sure it probably, yeah. I mean, I'm, it was kind of in, it was kind of intuitive. Um, but it was, a lot of work goes into making game shows. Um, yeah. And it just, you know, everyone has their niche and it just wasn't really for me. And I, I got quite, I got quite sick of it. Um, but I stayed in entertainment TV for a little bit too long. So you worked on the holiday programme as well and then, and then various other shows for BBC and Sky. So what other shows did you work on? I worked on, oh, it's all coming out now. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> now, I worked on something called Britain's Wildest, which your listeners can probably still get on YouTube. And if okay. I just say it wasn't David Attenborough. <laughs> it was about 11 o'clock on Sky One. And I had to compile a fetish art gallery. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot more about this world than I'd like to. Um, of people's interesting proclivities um so I, I i sort of had to do internet searches that in most workplaces would get you thrown out and saw stuff i didn't really want to see but um and then had to go i did a shoot in a in a fetish club um at one point um which was was interesting um and what was going on in there th there was a lot of nakedness <laughs> Um, but of course we had to get people to sign release forms um, to appear in the shop because we were compiling. Actually, it was actually it was really interesting um, and met some great people. And it was a whole world, obviously, I, I, I hadn't really experienced or knew much about. But I learned a lot about it. And, and actually, there's a lot of art in it and a lot of, you know, pride and dignity. And it's really interesting. But anyway, you have to get people to sign release forms, which is obviously a little bit more of a thing if they're naked. And there was one individual who was quite a high, high powered person um, in their workplace, but who got a kick out of running in shot um, naked and, and wiggling about. Because every time he did this, we had to redo the shot. Um, and I started getting really quite angry about it. So I said, look, I don't want to spend too long in here. It's really late. I want to go home and sleep. Can you please stop getting in shot? And then he said, oh, I love it when you're angry, spank me, spank me, and started running around in circles. And I thought, oh, I really have reached the bottom of my career here. It probably is time for a change. And that was the um, last time you saw David Willits. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> and then I became an MP. <laughs> but Britain's, Britain's 
wildest sounds like a kind of Euro trashy type thing, or would that not be fair? It was a very um, wide ranging and entertaining show and format. And do you know what? TV and media is great because you, you talk to people, meet people. Actually, it's a bit like being an MP. You talk to people and meet people and interview people and understand people who you wouldn't come across in your, you know, we all have ruts in our life or, you know, you know, places that we, you know, the lines we usually go down in our lives. And that took me into places I'd never normally be. And I met some, you know, actually through that, the fetish club um, art gallery I compiled, I met some amazing people, really lovely, amazing people who helped me understand a lifestyle that was not one I shared. So, you know, it's it's a good story, but actually I felt very lucky in some ways to, to get to meet people like that. And is TV production something you'd like to go back into? I do, I do like storytelling and media. And when I left university, I wanted to make a difference in some way. I didn't quite know how, but I just wanted to make a difference for better. And I saw media and politics and I thought politics was a load of old rubbish uh, and barking old men. Um, and I thought media changed hearts, minds, people's you know, attitudes more. So that's, that's why I started going into media. Um, I didn't become Kate AD. I ended up on Britain's Wildest, but that in itself was a huge experience. And what about politics? Do you fancy going back in? I mean, I guess you're never out. It's just you're, you're in politics, you're not in Parliament. I don't mind not being in Parliament, to be honest. It's, you know, obviously I'd have preferred to keep my seat, I guess. But I think I said on election night, you step away with either victory or liberty. And liberty is pretty good. If you, if you do being an MP properly, it does take up your whole life. Um, it is, it's a vocation um, and you give your life to your constituents and your work and it's exhausting. So when someone says you're relieved of that duty now, to be honest, a lot of me felt a huge sense of relief. And I'm very lucky. I still operate in and around Westminster and politics and I still see all my friends. Um, and I work for something called the Conservative Middle East Council, which tries to help build understanding and relationships between the Middle East and Conservative and actually all parliamentarians and, and the UK. And that feels in a world of polarisation and misunderstanding, it feels like a, a thing that's worthwhile doing. So I'm very lucky in, in where I currently exist, that political itch, which I probably do have, still gets scratched. Uh, and chairing the Conservative Middle East Council, did, did that start did that interest start with Iraq did that set you down a particular road actually started it's a funny funny old story started um with 9-11 and I'd been up the Twin Towers exactly a month before on my birthday and oh, I'd gone up with a friend and I, I don't like heights and I'm always worried about fires in buildings but I got to the top and said oh I've got to get off there's going to be a bomb um and I mean, you know, it's, I, I don't like heights and I don't like, I always get yeah. a bit claustrophobic. So it wasn't such an out of character thing for me to say. But anyway, we had this terrible conversation about if the floor below you was on fire, whether you'd rather burn or jump. And I remember saying, I've just, just got to get off here and, and went down. So of course, a month later, when I was in Chicago, watching people make that decision live on television, it, it hit me. I mean, I was very lucky. I didn't know anyone in the towers, but it hit me in a way I, you know, changed my life. And I was supposed to be going back to university to do a master's. And I thought the world is literally blowing up out there. Something has happened that I really don't understand. 
And I think I should. And I think America is very wounded and might do a silly, terrible thing. And I need to understand my world a little bit better. And going back into an ivory tower to write some thesis on Ovid isn't going to help anybody. So I cancelled my master's and that's where I thought media or politics. And I had this huge desire to understand, particularly the Middle East, where, as you know, as, as the reasons for it and the jihadism became what, something that was more known about, I felt I needed to understand what led people to do this, what was behind it. And that really fueled my love for and interest in the Middle East. And then the Iraq war happened. Um, and as I said, I didn't understand why politicians didn't understand that this was going to be a disaster. And when I was an MP, I was very lucky to travel with CMEC. Um, I was in Syria in February 2011, just before the civil war broke out, which was an extraordinary experience. It was very apparent what was going to happen. And I realized how important it is to actually go to a place just as it's important for politicians to be in touch with their constituents and know what's really going on through real life, it's important for politicians to get out of Westminster and understand people in the region, meet people, talk to people, and not just have it through a lens of some briefing notes that come through the House of Commons Library. So that's, that's what I do, and I'm very passionate about it. And, and so what does CMEC do that, that the House of Commons Library doesn't then? Do you, can the public access the sorts of materials that you produce? Do you, are, there, are there meetings? Are there Zooms people can come to? Yeah, there's, um, we have got a, a podcast series, which I will plug. Oh, great. Apple Podcasts and, um, and SoundCloud. And we do Zoom meetings, webinars. Our key thing has been getting parliamentarians out to the Middle East. Um, but because it's just so important for people to understand what's going on. Um, but we're, we've got a new website that's coming up, which we hope is going to be a repository of information about the Middle East, whether you're an expert or a beginner, or an MP who wants to make a speech on the Middle East and doesn't feel they know quite enough about it, which was often the position I was in. So we, we aim to be a useful information centre for everybody, because I think you can never build enough bridges and understand enough. And is that a podcast that you host? I host, yes, I host some of them. Um, we've had speakers like Tobias Elwood, uh, Defence Select Committee, um, and actually John Ashton, who ran Bahrain's COVID response, which was a very, very interesting podcast on how Bahrain's managed COVID and what lessons we can learn here. So we cover a whole range of stuff. Um, we, what's it called? CMEX podcast, imaginative. Simple as that. <laughs> cmec.org.uk you will see a website that is it is uh is under under redevelopment we'll be we'll be getting a new one out soon and you'll find our podcasts on there great and well, I'll put... and comments however critical are very welcome well i should put a link in the blurb and in the show notes to this so that people can subscribe to your podcast as well oh thank you thank you it's uh, as you all know getting podcasts getting them going and it's a whole new experience and really it was covid that did it for us so that was um something a small silver lining to come out of covid and what have you learned from hosting podcasts? I mean, is that is that something you'd like to do? I mean, a lot of TV producers end up becoming presenters. You know, I had Nick Robinson on. He started as a producer. A lot of news broadcast journalists make the leap from producer to presenter. Is that something you ever fancied doing? Yeah, I've, I've, I would like to do that. Again, it's, it's about bringing the best out of people and hearing about people and facilitating who they are. Um, yeah, I, I would like to do that. There's a, a to be honest, at the moment, CMEC is taking up most of my time to do it well <laughs> you have to put a lot of work and effort in but that's something i very much like to do and also i'd like to there are still there are so many really talented women 
in the Middle East. We have this image of Middle Eastern women as, as mousy women who follow their men around. Nothing can be further from the truth. And I'd love to have a platform where Middle Eastern women, particularly from the Gulf, can host and talk and do their own thing to show a Western audience and us here that Middle Eastern women are really a force to be reckoned with. They're absolutely fantastic. And I'm really passionate about that. And what about Parliament then? Would you stand again? I would. I, at the moment, it's, it's not for me. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And if I felt I could make more of a difference for the better in Parliament than outside it, yes, I would. But at the moment, I'm, I'm really loving what I'm doing. And after a really gruelling seven-year stint, it is quite nice not to be in the public eye. I think it's become a lot harder to be an MP now than it was. And I remember the glorious feeling um, when I was interviewed, when I just lost my seat, of realising that what I said didn't really matter anymore. And it was hugely liberating. And I think I said to my interviewer, well, this is what I think. But to be honest, my opinion doesn't really matter anymore. And there's something really quite nice about that. I was always surprised. I know you did seven years to some, it might not be that long in Parliament. It's, it's a decent old stretch. Um, I was always surprised you didn't sort of become a minister and, 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 and stuff like that, because you're really talented, really bright, really likeable, stood out. You know, you had profile that many ministers couldn't get. Why didn't David Cameron or Theresa May bring you into the government? That's really kind of you, Matt. Um, there's probably some really obvious reasons, um, which I probably wasn't good enough and you did the wrong things. That's um, stopped others. <laughs> rubbish. Um, I always, I don't really think I'm cut out to be a very successful politician. I like getting stuff done. I'm not sufficiently tribal. And I think sometimes in elected politics, you know, sometimes you do need to be a bit tribal. Um, that's just not my personality. And I think I did a campaign on health and whistleblowers um, after the mid-staffs scandal um, uh, report emerged. And I, you know, I think probably if I'd been a little bit more dexterous and political, I wouldn't have spoken out so loudly and probably would have stopped. Um, but my dad's a surgeon. Um, you know, I, I know healthcare professionals and I, I felt I couldn't not speak out about the, the issues that I saw and I couldn't not support whistleblowers. And sometimes that wasn't politically very convenient but I didn't feel able to not say it just because it wasn't politically convenient. And I guess, you know, you make a choice. Do you want to stand up for what you believe in in that simplistic way, even if you're never going to get anywhere and get promoted so you have more um, ability and to change things? Or do you play the game and you, you rise up through the ranks so that you actually can change more? And I think probably there's no right or wrong. I think it's to do with temperament. And I think that Parliament benefits from having people of all different temperaments. It's very easy to think there must be one thing is right and one thing is wrong. But actually, I think the combination of different people, different perspectives and different things is probably what makes parliaments run, run well. And you were recognised for your work on Midstaff. You won the Backbencher of the Year or Parliamentarian of the Year in the Spectator Awards in 2013, which it's not a cabinet post, but I suppose it's, it's good to know that you, you'd raised an important topic and that, that had been recognised. You are, it's, it's a bit like losing your seat. Suddenly that's a long time ago. Um, but you don't ever get any feedback being an MP. I mean, you do from your constituents um, at elections and sometimes in between. Um, but there's no formal feedback as an MP in Parliament. 
And it was really nice just to know that I wasn't doing a bad job. That was kind of it. It's like, oh, I'm doing okay. I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm actually doing something, aren't I? I am. Oh, that's all right. Someone's told me I actually am making a difference. Phew, because I just thought I was pedaling really hard, not getting anywhere. Um, it was really affirmation um, and some feedback that you just don't get. It's so funny because so many people just presume that MPs, you know, feel powerful and uh, are important and all the rest of it and feel important. But of course, you're just human beings as well. And you want to know that you're doing the right thing or that you're on the right course in some way. And most and I think, you know, the, the kind of MPs has changed um, over the years. And lots of people who didn't perhaps think they were going to be MPs become MPs. And I remember the morning I woke up, I think it was the 6th of May 2010, after 48 hours of no sleep. And I remember waking up and thinking, oh, I'm an MP. And I sort of had this waking image that I should somehow look a bit like Abraham Lincoln in some way and be sort of important to maybe have a beard and be lofty. And I said to my mum, how can I be an MP? I'm just me. And she said, that's who they voted for. Um, and I thought, oh, yeah, OK. So, you know, I still wore jeans and a jacket and I still was as much me as the me MP that my, my constituents have voted for. But it was a bit of a shocker. I did sort of feel I should be, I should have a beard. I don't know why I felt I should have a beard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of icon of quite stuffy importance. <laughs> well, it just feels, a beard feels quite a kind of old Labour left kind of look. You know, the modern <laughs> MP is more, you know, you think of the, the House of Commons now, it's not diverse enough, but it, there's far more different faces in there than perhaps we've been used yeah, to. Yeah, that, that's a really good thing. You know, you look at you look at Parliament now, and there's so many you know more different kind of people. And for every you know person who's in there, there'll be people watching Parliament who think, do you know, actually, I think I can do that because there's someone there who looks a bit like me, who doesn't have a beard, who doesn't have a beard. <laughs> but I'm not saying there's any that people with beards can't go into politics. <laughs> that's not going to be the headline from this podcast. <laughs> Charlotte, this has been an absolute pleasure. We've covered everything from Ovid to COVID and everything in between. Thank you so much. Right. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go. Have you seen Britain's Wildest on Sky? Were you an avid viewer of uh, the documentary series Charlotte produced? Do you remember the footage in the fetish club? Were you part of that fetish club? Get in touch politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com There were so many great bits to that um, about the choice, about what po sort of politician you are and in the end it has to come naturally and clearly for Charlotte she was someone who felt she had to speak out about things um, and that was the sort of politician she was uh, at that stage in her career but the beach thing I'm going to think about that now for ages I think that's going to keep coming back whenever I think of Covid or any mass thing where you're trying to get the public to behave in a particular way isn't the beach a great petri dish a great example of how to get people to follow the rules and why some people just won't um, and maybe maybe people would follow the rules if you did it differently who knows but that, I just think that is I will picture that now when I think about trying to get the public to follow messages and what sort of messages you use, and of course, crucially, how you deliver them and how you bring people round, um, so there was just that was just such a such a pleasure. And whatever side of politics you're on, there's something really refreshing about Charlotte's approach. And it's a shame that 
Parliament doesn't have Charlotte Leslie in it in, in, in that regard. So this is the thing. She's still so young for a politician, so there's still so much more that, that could happen. But I shall put a link to that uh, Conservative Middle East Council podcast in the blurb and in the show notes so that you can subscribe to that. And maybe at some point in the future, we have a more detailed discussion around one of their specific pages. Because it's always interesting when people then focus on a particular area. And not that she's claiming to be an expert on it, but just that they're always thinking about that particular, whether it's policy area or, or part of the world. Um, so that would be that, that would be something really interesting to do. I hope you agree. So thank you for downloading this. Please do leave a review. Some of you have done on Apple um, on the Apple Podcast app. I think that's the only podcast platform that allows you to leave a review. But thank you for those of you that have done it. Um, someone said, uh, I've always loved tubular bells and love the intro, outro music as a result. So whatever you take from this podcast, I presume that most people would be here for the interview, for, for the content. But come for the theme tune, stay for the hour or two in between. Um, but the main thing is, thank you for downloading it. I hope you're keeping well. Leave a review if you can. And uh, I'll see you next week. ta -ra.